Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view. That is the philosophy of government of those who founded our nation. In fact, all of our founding documents reflect this philosophy of government, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, subsequent amendments, uh, hit and miss. Some of them yes, some of them no. But that philosophy is simply put this way. There is a creator God, the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. And we're in the midst of a series we're calling the Dirty Dozen, we're looking at one dozen Supreme Court decisions that, in our estimation, were the worst. Uh, maybe your uh, estimation, you might add some to this list of the dirty dozen, but this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the dirtiest of the dirty dozen. That is Roe v. Wade. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and with me, my great two Friday morning collaborators, Philadelphia Constitutional Instructor and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. By the way, Mike has a great show just before ours, 7 o'clock on Friday mornings on WFYL. Uh, Mike G., the law matters, so I invite you to join that. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Roe v. Wade? It seems most adults and teenagers have an opinion about the 1973 case heard by the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, Roe v. Wade. Relatively few truly understand the background of the case, the judicial reasoning, and the implications for the rule of law. It has become the classical example of public binary thinking, with the political left insisting that a woman has a right to an abortion and those in the political right countering that abortion is murder. Although in June 2022, the Supreme Court overruled Roe in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization on the grounds that the substantive right to abortion was not deeply rooted in this nation's history or tradition, nor considered a right when the due process clause was ratified in 1868, so a right to abortion was unknown in U.S. law until Roe v. Uh, v. Wade. Roe v. Wade should not be considered in isolation, but in combination with all of the federal statute law that subsidized abortion and otherwise punished those who actively opposed it. After all, Article 6 of the Constitution states, this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Every federal law that subsidized abortion and every federal law punishing the opponents of abortion were based upon the alleged constitutionality of Roe v. Wade. One source claims that Planned Parenthood alone received $1.5 billion in a three-year period. And three, year, three months after Dodd versus Jackson Women's Health uh, Organization, the FBI forced its way into the home of Mark Houck's home in Kintnersville, Pennsylvania, arresting Halk on two charges of violating the Federal Freedom of Access to Clinical Entrances Act for a scuffle that occurred almost a year prior at the Philadelphia abortion provider. Although the incident may ultimately have arisen after Halk's attempt to defend his son, according to the Heritage Foundation, Houck's conviction, uh, I'm sorry, Houck's conviction could result, according to the Justice Department, in a maximum penalty of 11 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and fines of up to $350,000. But the essence of Dodd versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is that the federal government does not have jurisdiction in incidents that occur locally. States have jurisdiction, and Pennsylvania refused to hear the complaint against Mark Halk. 
abortion is justified by its supporters in the name of a woman's right to an abortion. And when asked how that right is recognized, the supporters will claim Roe v. Wade in 1973. But this raises the question about the creation of rights. The supporters of abortion claim that government not only recognizes rights, but that it can create them through ordinary legislation or judicial action. However, there is no amendment to the Constitution that grants a woman the right to an abortion. So the idea of Congress or the Supreme Court creating a right is nothing more than a fiction. Even if Congress or the Supreme Court could create a right, there's no such thing as a right that aggresses on another human being. First Amendment rights may be enjoyed without that aggression, but requiring the taxpayers fund the abortions elected by others is aggression. If the required taxes are not paid, federal government personnel, uh, personnel could show up at your door with drawn guns as they did in the case of Mark Houck. While the political left's position on Roe v. Wade is widely known, only a few remember the National Right to Life Committee's disastrous endorsement of Fred Thompson in the 2008 Republican presidential election. This is a classic example of, for want of a nail, the war was lost. The lacking nail in this case was the National Right to Life Committee's understanding of the Constitution of the United States. The challenge arose when a poll released in early February 2007 had pro-choice Republican candidate for the presidency, Rudy uh, Giuliani, leading with 32 percent and John McCain second with 18 percent. By early March, Giuliani had become the front runner. Former Senator and actor Fred Thompson entered the race later in September. Mike Huckabee, Mitt Romney, John McCain, and Ron Paul were also candidates. With the exception of Giuliani, all the Republican candidates had varied pro-life credentials, and with McCain having the poorest record, according to the National Public Radio. McCain's pro-life record isn't totally spotless. He did vote in favor of expanding federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. Ron Paul, at the other end of the uh, spectrum, was in 2007 and 2008 also an OBGYN pro-life physician who had delivered more than 4,000 babies and had written two pro-life books. Never before had the movement had such an outstanding pro-life candidate for the presidency. But there was a problem. Paul did not want to ban abortion at the federal statutory level, insisting that abortion was within the state's jurisdiction. This did not endear him to the National Right to Life Committee, which took the position that anybody but Ron Paul would get their endorsement. The committee stuck to its guns, finally endorsing the worst pro-life candidate, John McCain, who was a pushover for the Democratic candidate, Barack Obama, in an electoral vote of 365 to 173 in the 2008 general election. As events played out and successive endorsed candidates dropped out of the race, the committee's action would normally have been comical if it did not have such devastating consequences for the nation. The first test of the committee's endorsement came during the 2008 March for Life of January uh, 22nd, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, of the Roe v. Wade opinion. Ron Paul's supporters were everywhere carrying professionally made signs for their candidate. One Fred Thompson supporter was also visible, pathetically carrying a homemade sign while pedaling his bicycle. That evening, Fred Thompson withdrew from the race. Failing to get the message, the committee then endorsed Mike Huckabee. Rather than just informing pro-life supporters which Republican candidates had legitimate pro-life credentials, Huckabee withdrew on March 5th, just 43 days later. The National Right to Life Committee's endorsement 
then went, was granted to the least pro-life uh, candidate uh, since Rudy Giuliani had withdrawn earlier in the race, and that was John McCain. The committee had been consistent. However, anybody but Ron Paul would get their endorsement. That the committee's positions had been narrow-minded can be seen when non-pro-life issues are considered. In addition to his pro-life credentials, Paul was a formidable candidate who could take on the Democratic candidate on issues about the Constitution, health care economics, federal spending, and the role of the Federal Reserve System in destroying the worth of the dollar. As with the vast majority of the American people in 2008, he had opposed the Republican-sponsored and Democrat enthusiastically supported financial bailouts. In October of 2008, both Obama and McCain had raced back to Washington to vote their support of these ballots. Of all the candidates, Ron Paul was best positioned to take advantage of the reaction to George W. Bush's promotion of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Most of the people realized they had been lied to by the Bush administration, particularly after it became apparent that there were no weapons of mass destruction that Iraq could deliver against continental United States. In the minds of voters, John McCain might just as well have been the founder of the Invasion of the Month Club. It was difficult to find a candidate who was so mismatched to an electorate as it was turning away from the foreign adventures of the George W. Bush years. So how does all of this relate to Roe v. Wade? In the comments that follow, remember that Ron Paul is beyond those years in which he might be considered a political candidate for the presidency, although he remains active in politics. But his life experience and fundamental principles are still relevant to future presidential races. However, and to civics in general, Ron Paul's position was finally acknowledged when Roe v. Wade was overturned with Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. It is too simple to claim that this reversal ends the matter. Certainly battles for life remain at the state level, but that is the smaller part of the issue. Among the candidates for the presidency in 2008, Ron Paul was the only candidate who understood the bigger picture of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to use Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence. We need to reflect on what was lost in the national dialogue when he was forced to terminate his, uh, his candidacy. Events like Roe v. Wade and Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization overturning Roe v. Wade do not occur in isolation. If we are to benefit from history, we must be willing to look at the broader implications of these events. Let's look a little bit into the background of Roe v. Wade. Now that we have that perspective, it's time to narrow our focus into Roe v. Wade as one of the dirty dozen of the Supreme Court cases. The Supreme Court's Justia website provides uh, this case background in its syllabus. A pregnant sing single woman, Roe, brought a class action challenging the constitutionality of the Texas criminal abortion laws, which proscribe procuring or attempting an abortion except on medical advice for the purpose of saving the mother's life. A licensed physician, Alford, who had two state abortion prosecutions pending against him, was permitted to intervene. A childless married couple, the Doe's, the wife not being pregnant, separately attacked the laws, basing alleged injury on the future possibilities of contraceptive failure, pregnancy, unpreparedness for parenthood, and impairment of the wife's health. A three-judge district court, which consolidated the actions, held that Roe and Halford and members of their classes had standing to sue and present just justicable controversies, ruling that uh, de uh, declaratory, uh, though not injunctive relief, was warranted, the court declared the abortion statutes void as vague and overbroadly infringing those plaintiffs' Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. 
We've encountered the 14th Amendment's due process before as a rationalization for the federal Supreme Court intervening in a case that would otherwise be settled in a state's judicial system. The Ninth Amendment states, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The idea is right, but there's nothing in the Constitution that grants the Supreme Court the power to recognize a new right. As with other rights recognized in the Bill of Rights, the recognition of a new right in the Constitution is only allowed through the amendment process specified in Article 5. So what was the Supreme Court's opinion in the Supreme Court held that. Uh, number three, state criminal abortion laws, like those involved here, that accept from criminality only a life-saving procedure on the mother's behalf without regard to the stage of her pregnancy and other interests involved, violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects against state action the right to privacy including a woman's qualified right to terminate her pregnancy. Though the state cannot override that right, it has legitimate interest in protecting both the pregnant women's, uh, woman's health and potentially of human life, each of which interest grows and reaches a compelling point at various stages of the woman's approach to term. And the sub A under that is for the stage prior to approximately the end of the first trimester, the abortion decision and its effect, effectuation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. B, for the stage subsequent to approximately the end of the first trimester, the state in promoting its interests in the health of the mother may, if it chooses, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to, material, uh, to maternal health. C, for the state subsequent to viability, the state in promoting its interest in the potential of human life may, if it chooses, regulate and even proscribe abortion except where necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. Where did this right of privacy come from? It certainly hasn't arisen out of the 16th Amendment and its implementation of the Federal Internal Revenue Service, which penalizes citizens for not accurately revealing otherwise uh, confidential information. Isn't that a conflict with the Constitution's Fourth Amendment, which states the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Anybody believing government would restrain itself against penetrating the privacy of its citizens should have been rudely shocked by Edward Snowden's revelations of national security agencies spying on citizens. The Supreme Court's understanding of pregnancy is even more shocking. Its opinion artificially divided the three, uh, the gestation period into three trimesters. In the first trimester, the decision to abort the fetus was left to the woman's attending physician. But after that, the state, in promoting its interests in the, in the health of the mother, may, if it chooses, regulate the abortion uh, procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health. The issue of when life begins was sidestepped by introducing the concept of the fetus's viability. The court's primary holding was a person may choose to have an abortion until a fetus becomes viable based on the right to privacy contained in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Viability means the ability to live outside the womb which usually happens between 24 and 28 weeks after conception. This is a legislative, not a biological concept, which even in 1973 had to be arbitrary. Within a decade of Roe v. Wade, obstetrical ultrasound tests 
were able to demonstrate that life begins at conception. Yet it was not until 2022 that the Supreme Court reversed the case in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. So what's the significance of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization? Justice's summary of this opinion is, the Supreme Court reversed, overruling its own precedent. The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The authority to regulate abortion belongs to state representatives, citing the faulty historical uh, analysis in Roe v. Wade. The justices concluded that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, regulations and prohibitions of abortion, which are governed by the same rational basis standard of review as other health and safety measures. In other words, Ron Paul had it right from the very beginning, and the National Right to Life Committee was wrong. What are the chances we'll hear an apology? Oh, very good. Thank you, Phil. And, and you're, you're correct in pointing out that uh, basically Dobbs, uh, the, the recent case here in 2022, put the, the question back to the states, saying this is not a federal question. And, and it's an example of how many things have become federal questions that really have no place there at all. The federal questions, according to our founders, should be left to those issues that are dealt with by the Constitution itself. The Constitution has nothing to say about the right to life uh, or the right to an abortion. Rather, it has to, it speaks to the right to life, not the right to end a life. And I find it fascinating because uh, throughout their case, uh, their opinion in Roe v. Wade here, they refer to the life and health of the mother repeatedly. This and that, and okay, in the first trimester, this, second trimester, life and health of the mother, the state, and so forth. But they never, never speak about the life or health of the baby in the womb. In other words, like you say, sidestepping the question altogether, really refusing to actually examine the most important question. Imagine you were standing at your kitchen sink, and uh, your young child, maybe a three or four-year-old, uh, came up behind you. You couldn't see them, but you could hear them. And they said to you, Daddy, can I kill this? Well, you, without turning around, you'd probably ask, what is it that you're <laughs> intending to kill? Are you going to kill an ant? Or are you going to kill the, the family cat? Or are you going to kill your brother? You know, you just can't say, uh, here's a blanket decision. You can go ahead and kill it. No, you have to know what it is. And again, they don't define it. And they they, like you say, they created a fake system. Never before in biology or in obstetrics does anybody look at trimesters. That's a, that's a fake thing that was invented by the Supreme Court, a bunch of lawyers trying to become obstetricians. Well, they ought to talk to Ron Paul, who delivered babies, thousands of babies. He's an obstetrician. He knows the issues of life in the womb, and they obviously were ignorant. And we're not interested in having their ignorance lifted as they uh, rendered this, this opinion. Now, it's fascinating to look at some of their rationale and reasoning here in, in the language of Roe v. Wade. In fact, if you take the time to read Roe v. Wade, I think you'll have less and less respect for the Supreme Court. You know, we often hold them in high regard because, oh, you know, they've re reached the highest levels of the heights of Mount Olympus, Olympus, and now whatever comes out off their pens, whatever ink they spill on paper becomes the law of the land. No, no, that's false. That's not the thinking of our founders at all. They are judges, and they judge cases and controversies that come before them. But in this case, they should have recused them or should have refused to uh, grant certiorari. They should have said, no, 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 this is something left to the state of Texas to, uh, to decide. But in their rationale and their reasoning, they point, as you rightly say, Phil, to the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. And you could read the Ninth Amendment as well as I, basically. The rights that are not listed here in the Constitution are not forfeited because they're not listed here in the Constitution. I'm just giving you a paraphrase of the Ninth Amendment, but they do do some very interesting wordsmithing and twisting and turning here with the Ninth Amendment. And they talk about the idea that this woman's right to end the baby's life in her womb comes, uh, you know, kind of between the lines. They say it's from the penumbras and the emanations 
of the Ninth Amendment. Now, when we hear that word penumbra, we say, well, what in the world is that a reference to? Well, if you look it up, uh, that, that refers to the shadow the moon casts in terms of when, uh, you know, when, a, when an eclipse is taking place and so forth, this very faint shadow and so on and so forth. So it's like, oh, there are these, these shadows and these emanations that you can't quite see, but we claim that they're there. In other words, they're, they're making up a myth, a, a myth that says a woman has a right to end, to terminate the life of the baby within her room, womb. Now, this really begs the question that we need to actually address, because that question is this, where do rights come from? And our founders are very clear where rights come from. It's stated right there in the Declaration of Independence in no uncertain terms in the first two paragraphs. Rights come from the creator. That's right. And therefore, we look to the creator's statements about what rights actually are for an understanding for, uh, of those rights. In other words, the Supreme Court can't make up any rights that it wants to. And in fact, the Supreme Court can't even create anything. Uh, at all in that regard. So rights come from the creator who's established the laws of the universe and the laws of the universe tell us what those rights are. So one of the laws of the universe is thou shalt not steal. Therefore you have the right to own property. Another one of the creator's laws is very clear. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That is, no one has the right to take an innocent human life. That's the law of the universe, and that's where rights come from. They come from the creator who established the universe and the laws of the universe, and your rights are written not in the Constitution. That's not a full compilation of anyone's rights, not even in the Bill of Rights. That gives some of the rights, but the Ninth Amendment exists to state that just because it's not listed here in the Constitution, it's not that you've lost any of those rights because... Those rights are given by your creator, the one who made the universe. And therefore, when we want to find the full list uh, of your rights, we need to turn to the author of your rights, God, and look in his word. And in his word, we discover all of our rights. And by the way, the word of God is very clear about the baby within the womb. That baby is a human being from the moment of conception. Think of, uh, we're you know, just about to celebrate Christmas here in another week and, and a couple days. And this celebration of Christ Christmas is about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, a tremendously miraculous event. But nine months before that event was another miraculous event. That is the incarnation of Jesus Christ when he entered the womb of Mary and became fully man and fully God at the same time. So that from the moment of the conception of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ in the womb, he was fully human. There was no point at which he was not human. In fact, we have the amazing account of just shortly after the pregnancy of Mary began, she traveled to the hill country uh, to visit her, her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant at the time, uh, I think six months ahead of uh, where, where Mary was in her pregnancy. And the babe in Elizabeth's womb, who was John the Baptist, leapt as Mary approached the house, recognizing in the womb of Mary the Messiah, who was yet just a very, very tiny, tiny human being. But his size didn't matter in terms of him being human, nor his level of development, that he was very small in terms of his level of development, nor his location, his environment, his address. That didn't matter, uh, nor the degree of his dependency. Obviously, a baby in the womb is completely dependent on his mother for all of its uh, protection, nurture, everything. But the size, level of development, environment, and dependency did not say he was not human. He was human from the moment of conception. And so the Supreme Court were dead wrong in inventing a right for a woman to take the life of the innocent baby within her womb. That is not a right, because if it was a right, it would be spelled out in Scripture. Instead, Scripture makes it very clear that if uh, a, a baby is killed within the womb, by, and we're not talking about an actual uh, uh, intended abortion. We're talking about a fight was taking place between two men, and by accident, the woman got in the way. Somehow the woman uh, was hit hard, and there, it resulted in the death of her baby. That was to be treated as a murder. A life was taken. An innocent human life was taken. And if the, the injury to that baby in the womb was done, 
but the baby lived, the baby was born, let's say the baby was born without an eye. Uh, and there is the famous line that the punishment to the one who caused that injury to the baby in the womb is to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so the adult human being that injured the baby in the womb was to pay the penalty as if that baby was outside the womb. You see, God's law is very clear on this. The baby in the womb is human from the moment of conception. We know this, uh, David, in, in Psalm 51 he said from the moment of his conception, he was a sinner because he was a human being from that moment of conception. So, again, the Supreme Court completely ducks all of these issues, and they really don't even answer the question, well, what is it in the womb? Like if you were standing at the sink and your boy came up behind you and said, Daddy, can I kill this? You've got to first answer the question, what is it that you're talking about killing? And of course, the Supreme Court will not talk about killing uh, uh, what it is that is being killed in the womb, because to do so would be to admit that this is an unjust taking of an innocent human life. A woman has no right to terminate her pregnancy in spite of what the Supreme Court rambled on here in, in Roe v. Wade about. And they speak also in this case of the potentiality of human life. That's their only close reference to the baby in the womb that the baby is potentially human life. So my question to the Supreme Court, if they were still alive, and I believe most of them, maybe all of them at this point, have gone on to their uh, eternal judgment. Uh, I'm not too uh, happy for what their condition might be eternally, given the result of their opinion result in 65 million plus murdered babies. But consider that. They say potentiality of human life. That is, they did not consider the baby in the womb a human being. Well, what is it? Was it a frog? Was it a dog? Was it a cat? At any stage of its development, was it something other than a human being? And biologically, the answer is very clear. Absolutely not. It was a human being from the moment of conception. Yes, it was small in size. Yes, uh, it was very early in its development. Yes, it was in an environment that's very specific in his mother's womb. And yes, uh, its level of, de uh, level of dependency was rather high. But just because a human being is short and small, we don't say people can murder them. Oh, just because a person lives at a certain address, we don't say, well, you can kill those people because that's their address. In this case, the address being their mother's womb, et cetera. So none of the reasons size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency are ever excuses for murdering any human being outside the womb. And if it is a human being inside the womb, which basically the Supreme Court is denying here, then there is no rationale for taking the life of that human being. Now, again, they often talk about the health of the mother. And uh, actually, the, the, the Texas law allowed for if there was something clearly life-threatening. And I've spoken with various doctors who said, you know, if there was a case where both the mother's life and the baby's life was threatened, the good doctor would be one who attempted and did everything he possibly could to save both lives. You would never say, oh, it's, uh, it's not worth saving that life. We're going to save the other life. I had a, a relative that had a baby born trisam, and, and that is a very tragic situation. And that baby just lived for a few days. She was encouraged before the birth of that baby to abort that baby. And she said, no. That is a human life in spite of its deformities and its problems and its complications. And yes, I hear that it's not going to live very long, And but I want to meet that baby. I want to love that baby and care for that baby, even though its likelihood of surviving very long is extremely short. Another friend of mine this uh, past month uh, talked about a, another woman giving birth to a trisem baby, and, and the baby died within hours after birth. But then again, the mother, she refused to take the life of that baby in the womb because she knew there was a creation of God. And that's really the issue. And that's what the Supreme Court was doing. They were taking God out of the equation and saying, we, the Supreme Court, because we wear black robes and we spill ink on pieces of paper, we can determine the laws of the universe. So they've gone on from there to even more extremes like redefining marriage in Obersfeld and so on. But the attitude of the Supreme Court is an arrogance against the creator of the universe and a rejection 
a rejection of the founding principles of our American philosophy of government, that there is a creator God, our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights, nothing else. And the list of God-given rights never includes a woman's right to murder, to terminate, to end the life of an innocent human being, even though that human being is within her womb. And we could talk about a whole other range of rights. How about your right to property ownership? In case like Kelo v. New London, where, again, the Supreme Court said, well, we don't don't really think you have the absolute right to own property. And if the government wants to take your property for whatever purpose, yeah, they can force you to give up your property, uh, even if the purpose really isn't a good public purpose, like building a road or a school or something like that. Instead, raising more taxes, that's fine. So when you surrender the American philosophy of government uh, that our rights come from God, then you are wide open to these tyrannical leaders wearing black robes on the on the court, the high court here, spilling ink on paper that will remove our right to life, in the case of the unborn here, our right to liberty, our right to property, and any other of our God-given rights. What happens when that uh, takes place is that all of a sudden we become subjects to tyrants who are tyrants far worse than King George III. So I'm grateful that the Dobbs case has overturned Roe, and I pray that the states will wisely understand the American view of law and government, and they also will outlaw uh, the taking of innocent human life, even though that life is there in the womb. The law of our land um, was severely injured. I I really believe it was severely injured because the impact of Roe v. Wade has not gone away, even though uh, Dobbs has turned it back over to the state. Phil, you rightly pointed out the FACE, the Freedom of Access to Clinic, uh, you know, that law is now being used against pro-life. But that whole law is based upon the idea that the federal government has jurisdiction over the issue of abortion. And therefore, the federal government can say, we're going to secure the freedom of access to these abortion clinics um, and anybody that violates our rules about how that freedom of access, we're going to go after them, including our friend there in Pennsylvania, Mr. Halk, and, and the terrible thing that was done to him and his family and the potential, like you say, 11 years in prison for simply being outside of an abortion clinic and having a, from what I understand, just a verbal interaction with uh, a a pro-abortion person who is screaming in the face of his son. But again, all those details I'm sure have to be worked out in the case. Other thoughts that you have about the impact that that, uh, Roe v. Wade has had? Well, I think, first of all, let me add that uh, the so-called scuffle occurred when uh, the individual was screaming and and obscenities, I understand, uh, in in the face of, of his son. And so Halk uh, did push, did shove uh, the uh, the plaintiff uh, in that case, um, and he sustained, I I think, uh, a scratch or something that um, required a band aid, something of that nature. I mean, it's re- ridiculous. Mm. So, you know, in a situation like that, you're going to send a man to to prison for what eleven years, and um, you know, uh, you're going to take three hundred and Fifty or three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars away from him. Um, you know what you're basically trying to do is you're trying to destroy him, and you're you're not destroying him based upon a sense of justice. You're, you're destroying him because he is a political enemy mm-hmm. of um, you know uh, the the left that's in power. So I think um, we we have to put that in perspective. I mean, this is this is the the idea of weaponizing these these. Uh, uh, agencies of the federal government, which themselves are questionable in terms of their constitutionality. Let me add something else, unless you wanted to. No, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, There apparently are are two versions of the the promotion of abortion. Um, And uh, for the most part, and and probably the, the lesser intelligent, if you will, uh, opposition is based upon the fact. Well, Roe v. Wade uh, uh, recognized this as a a right that a woman has a right to a, to an abortion. Of course, that's pulled right out of out of thin air. Has no substance, no precedence whatsoever. But there is another more sophisticated uh, defense of abortion, and you you would call this ethical utilitarianism. 
That's an oxymoron in a sense, but <laughs> but that's basically uh, the idea. And it's uh, the idea is probably a, a cousin of economic utilitarianism. In other words, uh, everything that happens in in the latter case, everything that happens in the economic world uh, should be justified by its utility. Well, nobody has been able to figure out how you measure utility. You know, so therein lies a great deal of problem. Uh, but of course, some people, Jeremy Bentham in, in particular, uh, sought to create this arbitrary unit called utils. You know, so uh, this action would create this many utils and that action would create that many utils. And when we go back to the, the other cousin, the, uh, the ethical utilitarian uh, people, they're essentially doing the same thing. But here's their thinking. The idea is, okay, look at a human life. And at the very end of life, there's this huge investment. And over the first part of that life, the parents have responsibility. And, you know, if you're looking at a fetus in the room, and, and particularly during this so-called first trimester, um, no problem because there's no investment whatsoever. Uh, when the child is born, eh, there's a small investment, you know, and then certainly by the time the child uh, reaches graduation from, from college, there's a huge investment that's involved. And so we ought to look at, at this whole uh, timeline, if you will, uh, in this investment perspective. And society is not harmed by the early, by, uh, by terminating a life because there's very little investment in it. Of course, that's ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, we, we could uh, ask ourselves, where did that kind of thinking come from? And apparently it comes from a professor at Princeton University by the name of Peter Singer. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> you, evil, evil man. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, you hate to judge people, but if you're going to do it, this is this has got to be uh, the number one position in the, in the line. Um, and as I recall, having read something about him, his current thinking, and I emphasize current thinking because this is, this could certainly be adjusted uh, over time. Um, his current thinking is that the parents ought to have like a two-week um, period of time to determine whether the child is truly viable after birth. And if not, you know, you put the, the uh, child in the dumpster and, and let the township uh, haul them away to, to a, a dump site. Uh, that is the thinking of Peter Singer. Now you'd say, wow, how far we've gone down the, the road since uh, that, that wonderful uh, period of time called ancient Greece when democracy was, was uh, um, first discovered. Baloney! Plato himself thought exactly the way Peter Singer did and documented it in his most famous book called The Republic. So this is, this is not a matter of our deteriorating gradually over time. This is a cycle, you know, a, a several thousand year cycle, if you will. Uh, we just go mad at times and then and, slowly come to our senses. And actually, it's a dechristianization cycle because when the church was born in the first century, that practice you're referring to of Plato, that was, that was regularly done. That uh, yeah. when a baby was born, uh, it was presented by the mother, usually to the father, and the father refused to touch the baby, refused to hold the baby. That baby was not to live. And what they would do is they'd take that baby out to the town dump, and they'd leave it there. But Christians, having a love for humanity and a love for their fellow human being, because Jesus taught us, love your neighbor as yourself, realize those babies were their neighbors. They were fellow human beings. And so Christians went to the dumps on a daily basis, and they picked up these discarded babies, and they raised them as their own. And that practice became so common, and Christians were known to be those who loved the babies and loved those infants who were discarded, uh, that eventually, you know, several hundred years later, as Christianity grew, laws were created against uh, murdering the baby after they were born, or even using abortifacients as some means by which you murdered the baby in the womb. 
And so it was Christianity that brought the value of all human life from uh, conception to natural death. That was a Christian doctrine, and you're absolutely right. That is being lost. It's really tragic. One of the last Western nations uh, to uh, legalize abortion, you can't really legalize it because it's against God's law, but anyway, was Ireland. And Ireland is a very interesting case because for more than a thousand years, Ireland had outlawed all abortions. The reason being, St. Patrick. He had come and he evangelized the pagan Irish, led them to faith in Jesus Christ, and the result of him leading the faith in Christ was not just their own personal uh, devotion to Christ, but he changed the legal system and developed a legal system based upon God's law in Ireland. In fact, he wrote a book, and he left a, a copy of the Bible with every church he founded and a copy of this book, Ex Legis Moesius, that is the laws of Moses. And part of that law of Moses was outlawing abortion. And that became the law of Ireland. And very interestingly, that book made its way across the channel to England and became used by the tutor of King Alfred the Great. When he was a child, he learned from that book. And so when he became, and the reason he's referred to as Alfred the Great is because he established the great standard of English common law based upon Patrick's book, which was based upon the Bible. So English common law traces its way all the way back to Ireland, to St. Patrick, and for more than a thousand years, abortion was outlawed in Ireland until just, uh, I believe, a decade ago, uh, where they supposedly legalized it, turning Ireland back towards paganism. And so what we see is there's a Christian era and now we have the repaganization of the Western world, turning back to the, the pagan ideas, the pagan gods, and the pagan disrespect for human life in the womb. And by the way, when you have disrespect for human life in the womb, eventually you have complete disrespect for human life outside the womb. That's why city up the road from me here, Baltimore, there's a murder a day, a murder a day in that, that city. My county has a greater population than Baltimore, and there's no way that there's a murder a day in my county. But in Baltimore, they do not respect human life. Why? Abortion is rampant in that city. And there was a point at which uh, New York City, I believe, more babies were aborted each year than babies born in New York City. And so when you reach that point of paganization, this collapse of the, of the civilization is, is really on its way, because if you don't have the basic respect for human life, then no one's life will be respected in the womb or, or outside the womb. Well, I think it's important to understand that, that this is a cyclical uh, basis. Uh, there is a book, which I think I've mentioned in the past, uh, uh, Charles Mackey's uh, The Extraordinary Popular Delusion and the Madness of Crowds. Uh, and it has all kinds of chapters on the craziest things like alchemy and uh, numerology and uh, witch hunts and, and, and so forth. But it begins with, with uh, three, uh, three what turned out to be financial uh, uh, bubbles. One, the Mississippi scheme in France. The second, the South Sea bubble in, uh, uh, in Great Britain. And then a third, which actually preceded those two, uh, the tulip uh, uh, craziness in, in Holland. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you see in this is that the, the all, all kinds of people get sucked into this. And I think it's, it's a matter of, you know, we're born with a certain amount of common sense. We know there's no such thing as a free lunch and so forth. But we really yearn for that. That's the other side, the dark side of us that that really yearns for for that kind of thing, and so along comes you know some huckster with a scheme. John Law was the the huckster in in France. Uh, along comes somebody like that, and at first people at the top of the social uh, ladder are drawn in, and before you know it, you know the hairdressers and then. <laughs> Uh, all the way down the the uh, economic ladder, people are drawn into this this idea that that uh, you know money is going to uh, grow on trees, you know, and it's it's basically the same kind of of wild thinking that we see with with abortion, you know that uh, oh you know this is inconvenient let's do it do away with it now we'll come up with some rationalization, but there's no logic that is uh, at the foundation of that. And when we trace the history of it here in America, the history is clearly related to Margaret Sanger, 
who is a eugenicist. That is, her philosophy of life is there are people who are unfit to be alive, and we need to either eliminate them or prevent them from reproducing. And they, they passed all kinds of laws for sterilizing what they called idiots, you know. And But more than sterilizing idiots, they just wanted to be sure that when a woman got pregnant that they deemed not worthy to give birth, that that baby was killed in the womb before it ever had a chance to see the light of day. And so they, and Margaret Sanger was very clear, I, I will uh, paraphrase her, but be, she basically said, the human garden is filled with weeds and we need to get rid of the human weeds. And she admitted that she believed those human weeds were the black race. That is extremely racist and that's the basis of Planned Parenthood. Now, we need to understand that Margaret Sanger is part of a worldwide movement of eugenicism. The idea that we can clean up the human race and create a better human race, a superhuman race. The Nazis called it the Aryan race. That's right. Nazism is based on the same philosophy as Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the idea that you got to get rid of human weeds, and, and uh, you do that by abortion and sterilization uh, of those uh, t basic race types you think are not fit to be alive on the face of planet Earth. And the evil of this is just enormous because we see that, for example, just take uh, the black population in America, half of the black population has been killed by abortion. The numbers of blacks in America have been cut in half by abortion. And they're down now to 13% of the population when they were above 26% uh, of the population before 1973 when abortion. And because Planned Parenthood very clearly targeted blacks, placed themselves in black communities. And I know these are kind of shocking things to talk about, but the reality needs to be spoken of. The eugenist movement is alive and well today. And there are those like Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum who want to see about 90% of the world's population gotten rid of. And Bill Gates also, about 90%. He would like to eliminate 90% uh, by injections and by war and by famine and other means uh, to reduce the world's population to what he claims is a sustainable level of a half a billion people. That means these evil people are targeting the elimination of approximately 7 billion people on planet Earth. And part of that, of course, is going to be sterilizing everybody they can, as well as aborting any baby in the womb, and then doing what they can to injure the health of those who are alive, uh, to eliminate them so that they get rid of what they call, and this is a term they actually use, they call people that they don't like, useless eaters. And we need to understand that, that evil, and it's a satanic agenda, that evil and satanic agenda has made its way into our government and has been part of why Roe v. Wade has been preserved all these years. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to over the freedom airways of WFYL, and uh, we want you to spread the news, to help others come to understand the founding principles of our constitutional republic. So join us each Friday morning at 8 a.m., 1180, and also go check out our website, 1180WFYL, and there you'll see a podcast, and if you go down and you click on We the People, the Constitution Matters, you'll find a podcast that is a thorough, detailed analysis of our entire Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, subsequent amendments. We did a, a study on the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers uh, and others, as well as what we're uh, conducting right now, the Dirty Dozen. So join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m.